We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, what's going on on the planet? I guess good news, great news. We were talking about the pause with uh, Hamas, uh, Israeli conflict, war, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and and it was supposed to end today. That's been uh, extended for another two days. So good news there all around, obviously, if uh, if if it obviously leads to more help getting in and a uh, uh, a reduction or a ceasefire for at least a period of time, uh, uh, then obviously that helps everybody, including the hostages, uh, which, again, uh, are continuing to come out in dribs and drabs. So the latest on all of that coming up uh, a little little later on on the show. Also, uh, Dave Woodard is going to be joining us uh, moments from now, anchor with uh, CHML News. You hear him every afternoon. He's done a great series called uh, First Responders in Crisis, and uh, it talks about what first responders go to or go through on a daily basis and the challenges they face. We're going to talk to him about that. We're going to air that. Uh, it'll run every uh, every day this week, just after the 4 o'clock news. So uh, very cool. Can't wait to talk to Dave about that coming up also are you aware it's cyber monday you know uh we were making a joke on friday and you know it's black friday everybody run for their lives uh but liz russell a producer extraordinaire as she always does makes it a pilgrimage to head down to uh it's her mecca she heads down to buffalo goes across the border and 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 gets the bargoons down there and there she is at five o'clock in the morning and one of the only 20 in line what is going on uh is it true that cyber monday uh, now outpaces black friday just you know uh, even though uh, people like Liz love doing the, you know, the the trip and, you know, the pomp and circumstance of it all, uh, some people just, uh, I guess, find it more efficient to sit at their keyboard in their pajamas and just hammer away there. So uh, we'll talk about that with Bruce Winter, uh, Winter, retail analyst and author. And, you know, I, I'm not surprising. I mean, because this has just been picking up steam. Uh, how long has it been around now? Anybody want to make a guess? Five years, 10 years, 20 years? All right, those are all good questions. We'll uh, ask Bruce when he stops by. Also, um, uh, the Ontario Liberals over the course of the weekend voted for a new, a new leader. We don't find the results out, though, until next weekend, uh, December 2nd or so. We'll talk about that and what that means moving forward for them. Uh, so it'll be uh, fascinating to uh, to hear or see how that's going to come out. Also, the F1 season is coming to a close. We're going to get Eric Thomas in here. You hear him every week uh, here on Raceline Radio, and uh, he'll sum up uh, the race that was and uh, the season that was coming up a little later on. As I mentioned, uh, Israel and Hamas reportedly in, uh, extended the ceasefire for two more days. We're going to talk to Reggie Giacchini, our Washington correspondent for Global News, uh, down in the U.S. and find out exactly what is going on. And, you know, I mean, um, uh, can we keep going with this? It was interesting because... Uh, uh, President Joe Biden was talking about this last week, that he was optimistic that it at least could be extended, which, you know, many thought it would be difficult just to even keep um, uh, things steady for four days. Uh, that being said, it looks like that has happened and it has been extended two days. So we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, uh, chasing down Education Minister Stephen Lechin, um Deals are getting done left, right and center with uh, teachers unions and such. The elementary teachers uh, coming to an agreement last week. And I think it's only one that is left that hasn't signed. Uh, and it's fascinating how this has all gone down. And there isn't any of the conflict that we just, you know, have have had year after year after year for the last several decades. So uh, trying to find out what's going on there and uh, where everybody is on that. Uh, obviously, as you can tell, uh, the cold weather has uh, arrived. And uh, obviously, it's, uh, you know, it means changing and the driving habits and all that sort of stuff. But uh, the first one always catches us off guard. And where are we going in the next uh, little while in regard to all of that? It's all coming up on Hamilton Today. Hope you can join in the fray. 
As I've said many times, the legendary CHML newsroom, the backbone of this radio station, uh, and the great people that work there and, and have worked there over the years. Uh, and uh, today is the debut of a five-part documentary series, First Responders in Crisis. This is the work of our very own Dave Woodard, and he joins us now. Dave, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks. I'm doing great, Scott. All right. Aired the first time, and it will air in the mornings. Uh, good morning, Hamilton, after 8 a.m., after the 8 a.m. news, and then with us in the afternoon after the 4 o'clock news. Where did this come from? What was the inspiration for this? You know, I started looking at a couple of things. Uh, a few months back uh, in September, there was the death of a Hamilton police member um, that uh, it kind of – it got spoken about, but it was one of those things that uh, Hamilton Police Association President Jamie Bannon uh, spoke uh, with us at length about in talking about the mental health of her members. Um, she went on to present at the Hamilton Police Service board talking about how there needs to be a better system uh, that's in place. It's also, uh, Scott, coming up on the 10th anniversary. I couldn't believe this when I saw it. It's the 10th anniversary of the death of Hamilton Police uh, Sergeant Ian Matthews. Of course, uh, Matthews, uh, you know, committed suicide at Central Station December 17th, 2013. And, and his family at the time really wanted to talk about some of the demons uh, that uh, police face on a regular basis. So that was how I kind of got into this and started to see, you know, like exactly where, um, what needed to be addressed, where have we come in the last 10 years, and what are some of the, the, the uh, I guess, newer wrinkles of mental health in the last 10 years, right? I mean, social media is one of those things that was very much in its infancy in 2013, wasn't nearly as um, as big as it is now. Um, you know, where where has technology taken us? So uh, there were a lot of kind of ways that I could have taken this conversation and I thought it was worth having. And, you know, a post-pandemic world as well uh, mm. exposed a lot of these things. So what are you going to touch on over the course of the week? What are what does uh, come to mind? What, what does need to be addressed? Yeah, so we did talk about a little bit what's happened in the last 10 years. And I, I know that uh, Jamie Bannon, the, the president of the Hamilton Police Association, she thinks that, you know, we haven't really come far enough. And, and that's fair. I mean, when it comes to mental health, you, you do have to uh, keep on working on it. And, and I spoke with Police Chief Bergen. And, the, and Fire Chief Dave Cunliffe uh, to talk about, you know, some of where they went, as well as, uh, you know, S Hamilton Paramedic Superintendent Angela Schatzman. She's actually uh, in charge of a, a brand new department that's employee wellness. So there are things that have kind of happened. That's one of the things we're going to look at. Uh, we're going to look at as well, um, you know, talking about technology. McMaster developed a, a new phone app uh, uh, about a year ago now now um, that is meant to help first responders. It, it, it's one of those things that uh, they've rolled out to about 30 organizations within Canada, that being, you know, whether that be police or correctional services or anybody else. And so we take a look at that app and how that's meant to help people. Uh, we talk about uh, social uh, justice campaigns uh, that have happened, particularly since the pandemic. Scott, we we know we talk mm -hmm. about uh, you know Black Lives Matter. We talk about all cops are bad, but there's also you know like paramedics who have been shot um, in different. Uh, areas of the country um, and how that impacts people. So um, that's another uh, thing that we're talking about. And I guess uh, finally, what we're going to be talking about is where do we go from here? Um, you know, things have changed in the last 10 years. There's no doubt about that. But it's, you know, what can we do moving forward to, you know, continue, um, you know, helping first responders with their mental health? And again, as we pointed out earlier, uh, all of this an issue prior to a global pandemic. Right. A global pandemic just heightens all of this. I mean, I remember at one time, uh, you know, after supper, you're outside banging pots and pans for mm -hmm. everybody that was keeping us safe. It's, it's funny how, um, you know, how our perception sways back and forth and such. What about the pandemic? Has it made this uh, easier to talk to? Are we addressing this more now because it was sort of front and center during the 
pandemic? Is it was it has it been like a wake up call for us? I think to some degree it has been. I know Police Chief Bergen was talking about how you know for the most part, uh, you know we can we've we've learned how to work from home as a society, right? There's more people working remotely. There's more people that were able to kind of step back from going into the office every day, uh, and that really kind of helped with a, a lot of people and their mental health during the pandemic. But uh, police, firefighters, paramedics, correctional services workers, they can't take the day off. They can't yeah. stay home. So, uh, you know, that really kind of played into all of that mental health. But I think the other end of that, you're right, Scott, I think people do kind of look at that and say, okay, well, this needs to be a priority now because we know that these people are are suffering. They're, they're having a hard time trying to, uh, you know, sort things out. And in uh, what you'll hear too later on today, one of the officers I spoke to was talking about some of the trauma that he'd gone through in the last, you know, like few years. And he talks about, yes, going to traumatic phone calls or traumatic mm. calls. But then you also see, you know, like, getting stabbed with a needle or getting punched in the face or getting spat on. So those things, especially in a, in a pandemic time, uh, is something that really affects the frontline workers. Yeah, I mean, it's hard enough for the general population. I mean, those EMS or any frontline worker that it's uh, it's at the head of the crowd, boy, it's a whole other story. All right, it uh, airs uh, every morning after the 8 o'clock news, then again every afternoon after the 4 p.m. news. Five-part uh, documentary series, First Responders in Crisis. Uh, Dave Woodard, anchor, 900 CHML, responsible for it all. Thanks very much, Dave. Great job. Thank you, Scott. We were talking to uh, Liz Russell, producer extraordinaire, uh, yesterday. Sorry, no, the last yesterday we were here. That would have been Friday. Black Friday it was. And, you know, she's one of those people that just loves doing the pilgrimage uh, out into the, you know, puts the helmet on and the knee pads and the elbow pads and out, out she goes. And... Uh, makes the trek across the border and what have you. And she was saying it was, it was kind of light uh, that it just, you know, uh, whether it's Black Friday, the deals aren't there, or it's just easier to sit uh, in your office or at the kitchen table and wait for Cyber Monday where you don't really have to do much. Uh, has it changed the way we look at these two events? Let's bring in Bruce Winder, uh, retail analyst and author of Retail Beforeing During and After COVID-19. He's here now. Bruce, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, I'm doing well, Scott. Thanks for having me on the program. Bruce, it wasn't that long ago. We remember the days seeing people's faces pressed up against glasses. You know, people were waiting to get in and, you know, they opened the doors and then the security guards would try to keep them in order. And there's people jumping over counters. Are those days oh, yeah. gone? Well, those days are, are probably happening with less frequency now. Um, there's been a there's been a gradual movement here of Black Friday sales to online versus in store. And uh, you are seeing some, you know, it's interesting though, you are seeing a little less of the, at least in Canada anyways, you're seeing a little less of the, you know, lineup at six o'clock. And I think where the action is now on Black Friday with stores is sort of midday, you know, people get up, wander to the mall, and a lot of it is for clothing and things. So, you know, it's less about getting up in the morning and going to that electronic store and more about, hey, hop into the mall and seeing what kind of clothing you can get. But definitely, um, we've seen that online shopping has stolen some of the thunder from brick and mortar. You know, and you bring up a valid point that I, I forgot about, Bruce. And, and the, you know, when Cyber Monday started, I mean, obviously, Black Friday was still king. And they were trying to really not only ramp this day up, but ramp up your engagement online, whether it was getting a database of customers, whether it was, you know, and they would often provide better savings online right. just to build up that th that segment, that, uh, that avenue. So uh, now that everybody's doing it, are the deals, better online now? Because at one time they were to try to lure you online. I think they're comparable, you know, with uh, with Black Friday, I mean, in-store, because either way, retailers are smart. They know that whether you're in-store or online, you know, you've, you've got to have something compelling, especially the big anchor items, right? Like not every item on Black Friday or Cyber Monday is going to be, you know, a huge discount. They have some of those to bring in or bring you on the site. And then some of them are augmented you know, at 30% off or 40% off to make money to subsidize the items that they're either breaking even or losing a bit on. 
Now that these both of these uh, events have so much performance, how does that alter what the the normal cyclical sale prices would be leading up to the holiday? Uh, in other words, do, do retailers wait and see how these go, uh, these two dates go before they torque up something else between now and the holiday? How does that work? Yeah, you got it. I mean, that's what happens is, you know what, uh, they, they put their best foot forward leading up to uh, Black Friday and Cyber Monday. They've, you know, a lot of retailers have started Black Friday sales earlier, so they kind of get a barometer read as to what the consumers be, will be like, and then they fine-tune their deals, uh, how, how much of a discount they want to show. And then they're all going to sit down uh, today and tomorrow and say, okay, where are we now? And uh, probably savings is going to be, you know, discounts are going to be a little nominal or lower from now till Super Saturday, which is like the 23rd of December. But between now and then, they're going to make strategic decisions as to whether they need to mark some stuff down or add another sale or do something just to clear inventory, right? So it's it's kind of like flying a ship. You're fl- flying a plane. You know, what's your altitude? What's your speed? You have to kind of adjust on the fly. It's the same thing with retailers. They're adjusting on the fly in terms of, you know, the pricing they're offering based on the inventory and based on c- customer sentiment, what customers are spending on. Uh, at the end of the day, Cyber Monday going to be successful just simply because you can cover more ground. I mean, uh, there are people like our, our producer, Liz, that still love to get out there and, and touch and feel and do the actual experience or such. But with, you know, if you're sitting behind a keyboard, you can certainly cover a lot more ground. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a lot of people who just see, you know, that they're all into Cyber Monday and Cyber Monday starts for a lot of companies Sunday night, right? So, you know, you can kind of do a little bit of both, too. You can see some things, get some things bought Sunday night, and then trek out to the stores if you want. But you know what? Yeah, it's just slowly. I mean, look at demographics, right? You look at Gen Z and millennials, right? They are super comfortable buying almost everything online. Where some of the boomers, some of the Gen Xers like myself, you know, we like to get out to the stores and touch and feel product. So you're just, just going to see a natural evolution, a natural migration away from brick and mortar. But brick and mortar will always be there. It's not going away. Uh, E-commerce isn't going to steal all of its thunder. It's just it, what at what levels do they balance out is really the question. All right. We, we usually hear this before the holiday, but obviously post-pandemic, affordability issues, interest rates, all of that stuff, housing, um, uh, and even layoffs before Christmas, which is kind of unusual. Are, are, are retailers just expecting this is going to be a lighter year this year? Yeah, they are. They're expecting this year is going to be a bit of a soft year. I mean, they had a couple of good years there. You know, they were charging full price for product. They didn't have to discount as much. Well, this is going to be harder on margins. They're going to sell more on, on promotion. So their margins will be challenged. And they probably see layoffs. You're probably going to see them chop people. You just don't need as many people. They got to save money somewhere. So they're probably sadly going to lay off some people, you know, come the new year if they haven't done it already. Uh, where does this leave Boxing Day? Well, Boxing Day is going to have a pretty good year this year, you know, because consumers consumers looking for deals. And, you know, if, if, if retailers have some discretionary items that didn't hit for them on Black Friday or Cyber Monday, they're going to have to get aggressive and mark them down. So I think we're going to see a pretty decent Boxing Day. And Boxing Day is Boxing Week now. And guess what? Boxing Week, according to retailers, <laughs> starts before Christmas, before December 25th. So it's going to have some good impact. People are going to be cherry-picking items. It'll be a bit of a smorgasbord, but it'll be fun. You know, when you think about it, uh, Bruce, Cyber Monday and Black Friday, they really limited themselves by doing that. How do you, you know, can you expand Cyber Monday off to a whole week or, you know, maybe five Cyber Mondays in a row? (laughs) You know, it's limited. They're trying to stretch it all, right? They're trying to make it like a six-week shopping period of nonstop sales. So does that does that sort of kill it for itself? And by that, I mean, you know, people are just at the end of the day, you know, they, they follow the hype, they whatever, uh, they got what they, you know, they know what they're going to spend. That's it. You know, that, you know, there's nothing more, there's nothing less, so to speak. Um, but do you kind of like, you know, is it is it all a little premature? Yeah, I mean, you know what, it is early on, but you know what, consumers are going to strike while the iron's hot with the deals because, after Cyber Monday, you start to play around with being out of stock, right? So you might, yeah. you know, you might start to see things drawn down in inventory, and you're, you're, it's a bit of a crapshoot in terms of getting stock. You may see an item and say, "I'm going to wait till Boxing Week," or you know, "I'm going to play chicken with the retailer and see if they'll mark it down before December 25th." But you know what? It just might be sold out. You know, <laughs> you might not have yeah. anything. So 
it's a bit of a gamble there to wait too long. So has it got to the point where retailers sell more on a Cyber Monday than they do uh, a Black Friday? Not yet. I don't think so. Um, I think we're a fair ways away. In the U.S., they said that overall, um, they don't have the total number, but they said that you know even Cyber Monday was going to be about $12 billion this year. And online sales of Black Friday alone, just the online portion, was about $10 billion. Mm, so wow, if there you extrapolate go. that, it's probably like a total of $60, 70000000000 billion in terms of cyber, uh, in terms of Black Friday versus Cyber Monday right now. And then, you know, there you go. Black Friday's got a cyber element to it as well, an online element. So there you, you're at the well from both ends here. Uh, Bruce exactly. Winder with us. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Bruce Winder, retail analyst and author, retail before, during, and after COVID-19, the Cyber Monday, Black Friday, Boxing Day thing. Uh, get ready. Uh, Bruce, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Yes, Scott. Have a great uh, day. Talk to you soon. Take care. Over the past weekend, members of the Ontario Liberal Party voting to select a new leader, and the ballots will be uh, hand-counted on December 2nd. The results being announced that day uh, at an event at the Metro Toronto Convention Centre. And to talk more about all of this, Wayne Petrosi with us, Professor Emeritus, uh, Politics, Public Administration, Toronto Metropolitan University, and here now. Wayne, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am, and I hope you are, too. Thank you. So far, so good, Wayne. Thank you. So is this a slam dunk for Bonnie Crombie? Um, I suspect it is. She is going to come out on top. And and I think for the Liberal Party, she should be, if they then follow the right policy prescriptions, she should be their best choice. Uh, policy prescriptions. What does that mean? Where where do you think she should take the party? Or well, well, where will she take the party? I, I, I suspect... Let me. I don't know where she will because I don't know her. But yeah. where she should take the party is in was highlighted by today's press conference between the mayor of Toronto and the premier of Ontario. Uh, as you know, uh, the province t- handed over today somewhere in the area of nine billion dollars to the city of Toronto, and yet you know I'll be blunt: the four one six has fewer seats than nine oh five, and yet for the last fifteen years. Every municipality in the 905 region has had an annual property tax increase greater than that of the city of Toronto. If Bonnie Crombie or the liberal leader, whoever it may be, wants to harness that, you could really light a fire in the 905 region. Does she have to bring the party closer to left of center? I suspect what she has to do is... Acknowledge the concerns that are voiced across the political spectrum of frustration that it doesn't seem to matter whether taxes stay the same, things don't get better. That's, I think, what she wants. They should. And you could do that in a conservative fashion, as Mr. Ford initially started out. And but you could do it also in a more liberal fashion. Uh, some have said some have said that uh, that Doug Ford has brought the Lib- uh, Surrey Conservative Party closer to center in a lot of the things that he has quietly done. Uh, is that what the Liberals need to do to find excess, uh, success? Many have said, especially with housing issues and issues along the Greenbelt and such, that that Crombie and Ford, in in some ways, agree are cut from the same cloth. Yeah, you know, and and truth is, uh, if, if if I was the, advising the, the new liberal leader, I would not focus on, on Doug Ford at this point. I would focus on uh, the current economic climate, the, the kind of uh, vice-like grip that uh, most people find is, has been placed on their purses and their wallets, and looking and promising to take steps to make that something different and something from the past. Uh, McGinty and Wynn, who will be speaking, I understand, at this uh, convention coming up uh, on the second, um, uh, especially Wynn in the, in the latter uh, latter part of, of their uh, of their reign, took it too too extreme to the left and and became too a too much of a social party. Are you saying that they have to get back to bread and butter issues, kitchen table issues? Oh, they certainly do. And by the way, what what Mr. Ford's press conference today, uh, uh, empowering the city of Toronto again with other people's money, Wynne and and McGinty did the same thing. And, and, you know, ultimately, 
905 turned on them, as it should have. And I suspect if the liberals have the presence of mind to remember what happened to them then, they can reverse the tables. How does how would the next leader, whoever that is, address the lack of housing that was built in Ontario over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years, especially during the Wynn-McGuinty era and stuff? How do you tackle that? Because I remember very distinctively McGuinty saying, I'm not interested in building. It was more about densification, which I'm not sure that happened either. But how, do, how, does, she, how does she change course there? Well, you know, what, you, you, you can, you can, what, one thing that's always surprised me about the housing issue is, is the extent to which people haven't, uh, or government hasn't understood what it did used to do. I mean, it, it, it's as if historical memory is gone from mm. political parties, from governments. And, and I, I'm always amazed by it because there were things that were done certainly in the seventies by conservative governments in Ontario, for example, the Home Ownership Made Easy plan that built thousands of homes or saw thousands of homes get built that saw people of low and medium incomes able to afford them and to buy one. And yet it's as if none of this ever happened in the past. Mm. Today it's all mm. about do we need to incentivize developers or do we need to go into uh, 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 agricultural land and, and take it out of production. Uh, it, it, instead of focusing on what we really want to do is find a way to get houses built where everyone still does what they do. Home builders build them, banks mortgage them, people pay for them. Hmm. Wayne Petrosi with us, Professor Emeritus, Politics, Public Administration, Toronto Metropolitan University, Ontario Liberals, looking for a new leader. We'll know more by the weekend. Wayne, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, let's move on. Uh, obviously, uh, before the weekend, uh, we were all very concerned and, and optimistic about a four-day pause within the conflict of Hamas and Israel allowing uh, much-needed people to get out and 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 aid that needed to get there in and such. And and many chatted as if, you know, uh, we weren't even sure if it would last the four days, if, if something would uh, start it up again. And U.S. President Joe Biden said he may even, you know, be hopeful of a pause that even lasts beyond the four days. And here we are. Uh, the four-day pause was to end today, and it has, in fact, been extended another two days. What does that all mean? Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. He's with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon. So many thought uh, at the beginning of all this, uh, we'd lucky if we made it for the four days. And then Biden seemed pretty optimistic about an extension. And boom, here we are. Are we surprised? How? Why did we get a two day extension? Well, look, the extension came uh, because it's it's clear that Israel sees that the pause uh, in its fighting is kind of reaping benefits in that Hamas is giving up uh, hostages. The United States sees that this has been working because over the four days, neither side who were a part of this truce, um, you know, broke down or, or, or let the truce go. Uh, and we know that the president, uh, along with America's top diplomat, Antony Blinken, uh, over the last 24 hours have had several high level diplomatic phone calls urging for this truce to continue um, to try and get as many hostages out as they can. So here we are now four days into this truce, extended another two days. And what we heard from the White House on Monday morning was that there is a hope that this will continue to be extended problem being the hostages are the only leverage that Hamas has. And if those numbers start to dwindle, Hamas may lose that leverage. So, you know, the, the questions about how far this goes after the second day are still up in the air. Uh, again, are we to assume that all of the hostages will be eventually released? As you said, this is uh, obviously leverage for Hamas. W what are your thoughts as if they will release them all? Well, it's worth remembering, Scott, that that Hamas does not hold 
every hostage that's in uh, that's in Gaza. There's mm-hmm. about 40 hostages that are being held by other militant mm-hmm. groups, uh, including uh, Islamic Jihad. Uh, and we heard from the Israelis when they initially brokered this agreement that it was Hamas's responsibility, regardless of who was holding these hostages, to get them out and, and to hand them over. It's problematic, though, because Hamas may not have communication with some of these groups. And as we know, communication systems have been knocked out uh, due to heavy fighting and due to the lack of fuel through Gaza. So this could become problematic for Hamas because just earlier in the day today, uh, the Israeli military said, look, if if this comes to the end of the second day and hostages are no longer being handed over, we, the Israeli military, are going to restart our campaign um, to eliminate Hamas. So, I mean, the pressure is on Hamas to to find every single person that they can, um, you know, whether or not they're holding them or not. Uh, with this pause and obviously uh, uh, discussions going on regarding hostages, has anybody talked or, or put forth any sort of idea as to what happens when this conflict ends, where these people will go? Well, I mean, look, that's that's been an open question uh, in Washington since this began on October 7th or on October 8th, when when Israel's military went into Gaza here. What is going to happen at the end in that the 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 situation can't be looked at right now? The situation needs to be looked at through the scope of at the end of this conflict. Um, and it is still an unanswered question. I mean, look, the northern part of Gaza is essentially a moonscape at this point. There's very little um, mm. that that remains intact. There are people that, you know, in the midst of this truce are able to walk walk back to the north um, with some of them saying that they don't remember where their houses are because they can't find it through um, the destroyed towns and, and you know, things that have been reduced to rubble. So whether or not this ends up being some foreign government that has to take control or the United Nations has to resume control, um, you know, it won't be it won't be Israel because we've heard pushback from the West as to who is going to be in control of Gaza. So at the end of the day, people will still remain in the territory. It's just unclear who is going to be in charge of it. Israel has said it can't be Hamas. The rest of the world has said it can't be Hamas. But unless somebody steps up, I mean, that's still another open question. Uh, has Hamas or is there any evidence of, of Hamas doing anything to help Palestinians during this? Well, I mean, there there are concerns about the health and safety, uh, at least of the hostages that are being held by Hamas and other groups, because as a part of this truce, the Red Cross was supposed to be able to get in and access these um, hostages. But that, you know, we've seen, uh, you know, images of hostages emerging in poor health. Um, and, and the question is, you know, are they being barred from accessing because they're not with Hamas? Are they being barred because Hamas is stopping it? You know, again, those are things we don't know. We've seen at least over the last few days, more than 150 aid trucks roll into Gaza carrying essential things like food and fuel and medical supplies that have not been interrupted by um, by, you know, Hamas fighters or Hamas leadership. So, I mean, it could be argued that in that sense, Hamas is allowing Palestinians to, to get the aid that they need and they're not interfering with it. But again, once the fighting starts up again, um, you know, and the truce has 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 dissipated. You know, it, it, it's unclear how Hamas is going to to react or respond when Israel restarts its campaign. And obviously it depends on the hostages and how many are released and if they keep getting released as to whether this is extended again or not. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, Israel has agreed to two days. You know, they could agree to three if an additional 10 are released. And then for every 10 mm-hmm. hostages uh, that are released, it would mean 30 Palestinians would be released from jails uh, in the West Bank and in Israel where they're being held. So there are incentives here. The question, though, remains, Scott, what happens with Hamas if the leverage starts to go away? Do they start demanding mm-hmm. longer pauses in between fighting because the number of hostages they're holding dwindles? Those are things to watch uh, over the next couple of days. Reggie Giacchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News, Israeli and Hamas. Uh, The pause has been extended two days. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. 900 CHML. It's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. If you're an F1 fan, you know that Red Bull's Max Verstappen ended the most dominant season in Formula One history with a victory at the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. 19th win. 19th win in 22 races. That's dominance. Let's bring in Eric Clapton. Eric Clapton. Eric Thomas, <laughs> Raceline Radio Network. Did you bring your guitar with you, Eric? 
Hello, you got the, I know, I know you play the bass. I know you play the bass, but can you add two more strings there? It's just like wind to, it like, up yeah, for us a bit. Like to, yeah, we'd like to welcome Jack Bruce into the show here. Yeah. yeah oh, exactly. oh yeah. Sorry, wrong guy. <laughs> no, that's all right. right. How are you, Scoot? How are you? I'm doing well. And how are you? Yeah. And your thoughts on like anytime you get somebody winning that many races? Yeah. Uh, you know, because we all watched uh, Lewis Hamilton do it for years, and I guess got seven yep. championships in a row. Uh, is it is this boring, or is it just draw? You know, once he takes off and wins, it, it draws more attention to the rest of the pack. It does both of those things, and it's an interesting debate because you're now getting the faction that says exactly what you started with there, is the fact that one guy winning all the time is boring, it's dull, it's predictable, and they need to do something, I don't know what, rule changes or whatever it is, or pulling back various ideas to try and stop this from happening. Yet there is an old phrase and an old axiom that I live by, is those who, are, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. It doesn't matter what era you look at. Since the modern era of Formula One began in 1950, we have always had dominant drivers and everybody else trying to catch them. Yeah. And Formula One, I think in their wisdom, Scott, never tried to fiddle with it and, and, and try and change that domination. You go back to Ascari, Prost, Senna, Mansell, uh, certainly uh, Michael Schumacher in there. Uh, and and Lewis Hamilton, as you just mentioned, with his domination, and now with the three championships in a row, it is Max Verstappen's turn and Red Bull's turn. And if that's the way it's going to be, that's the way it's going to be. I mean, we came out of a season last year where they changed the aerodynamic rules. Whenever you make big changes in the way the cars behave on the racetrack, you're going to get a big shuffle in terms of what's going on, in terms of results, in terms of success, in terms of failure. Red Bull. Thanks to an engineer by the name of, by the name of Adrian Dewey, designed a car that worked. Everybody else's car they came up with did not work as well as that. And Max Verstappen just rolled that thing out into the sunset with 19 wins. The other the other thing that's mind boggling is he led 1,003 laps this year. That's how good mm. they are. And you know what? The indications are early already that we could have the same domination with Verstappen and of his teammates. Sergio Perez, nicknamed Checo, that we could have the same domination by the same guys by the same car next year. Now, you talk about the changing of the cars and such. I mean, we know this is a designer's game. All the cars are, although there are specs they have to follow, they are all different depending on how they're constructed and right. such. Because Red Bull has such a great year this year, are we to assume they're going to have the same success? Or will Mercedes or Ferrari find something that they haven't? Well, they they might. The as I said, the indications are that Red Bull will be dominant again next year. But here's the thing that happens. You know, we know that Mercedes was struggling with a car that didn't work as well, and Lewis Hamilton with those seven championships still looking for that that eighth championship. They did not, unfortunately, give him a car he could really compete with at the top of his game. Having said that, he did finish third in the drivers' points with a car that didn't work that well. So, they, if Mercedes ever comes up with something that they can give. Uh, to Lewis Hamilton and, you know, with George Russell as well, you know, that is really going to work that he may grab that championship and get a lot closer to Red Bull. But no, you can't assume anything because if you do that, you make an ass out of you and me. You know the old joke. So those other teams now, it's not up to Red Bull to slow down. It's up to Mercedes. It's up to Ferrari. It's up to McLaren and the rest of them to get faster, get better, get a better car, put a more competitive car on the racetrack and try and tighten this gap. You did see... Ferrari improved quite a lot this year. However, they have other problems. They have their drivers and their strategists on the wall, not always on the same page, which is damn annoying. McLaren may have been the best one this year with Lando Norris and and Oscar Piastri. They really came to the fore. You were seeing Norris being interviewed after races because he was on the podium qualifying better. So they are better than they were at the start of the year. But it's up to the engineers now. It's up to the boffins, as we call them, the slang term for scientists or technicians back at the shops with these teams got to come up with cars that are going to be better than they were this year. And it's up to those guys. And they have staff in the hundreds to try and come up with exactly that. So can't assume, but the indications would be if Adrian Newey, that engineer I talked about is still on that Red Bull team. And I have no reason to believe he won't be. They are going to be very, very tough to catch again next year.
Uh, obviously, this a lot of this stuff is top secret, and even when the 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 season is on, they try to keep a lot of it hidden as they possibly yeah, can. Exactly, yeah. Have yeah. the other teams, or would the other teams have figured out? Okay, this is what Red Bull has done this year, just like what Mercedes did for the last seven. Have they figured that out, or are they still in the dark? Well, uh, they, they kind of are in the dark, but in in actual fact, as they're trying to cover all that stuff up. Most of the other teams know what their problem is. They're not able to design the car the way they want with the new aero rules, their interpretation of the rules, without making their cars too heavy. That was the one big advantage that Red Bull had over the other cars this year is the fact that they got the car not to porpoise, not to bounce up and down, and it was a light automobile. As you know, heavy race cars aren't very fast. So now it's up. The one area they've got to come up with these other teams is to build a race car that, yeah, is quick, but is not too heavy. And that was the one thing that held all those other teams back this year and why they weren't as good as Red Bull. Their design is good. It's sleek. It works with the aero rules. Most of the downforce comes from the undertray of the car now. The other guys couldn't figure it out as well because their cars were too heavy. So they've got to figure out a way on the drawing board to come up with a design that is, that is going to be quick. It's going to work and it's going to stick and it's going to work for the drivers, but it's not too heavy. If, if they, they've got to shed the weight, and they knew that just by looking at those cars. I mean, you can look at the Red Bull, and even with no, no decals on it or livery on it, what the difference is, and especially in the back end. Other teams have got to come up with an idea that's a little bit quicker. You can see it, you can eyeball it, but now it's up to those boffins to come up with a design that's going to work. Yeah, you still got to put all those pieces together. So exactly. uh, It's not easy to do. It's not easy to do. So uh, at the end of the day, is this that Red Bull just has now a superior design, or is Max that yeah. great a driver? Well, both, both. I mean, yeah. the, the, the fact of the matter that they've given him a car that he can work with to the point where <laughs> he was so dominant at the end of the year, he's singing in the race car as he's working. That's how good that car works with that guy. I mean, Max, believe me, Max is an extremely, extremely good guy. He is so consistent. He rarely, rarely makes mistakes. You know, you saw Leclerc when the Ferrari make mistakes. You saw, you know, uh, Lando Norris yeah. make some errors. He rarely makes a mistake. He qualifies normally on pole or at least on the front row. He bides his time. He's a very skillful guy. He knows how to pace himself. And if he's not in the lead, he'll get there eventually. But once he's there, you watch his telemetry. He is rarely just a split second off in any two corners, lap after lap after lap after lap. And he does that race after race. And that's the reason why he won 19 of these darn things this year. Uh, F1 in a pretty good place now, considering, um, you know, with more races being added in the U.S., they're pretty healthy right now. Yeah, they really are. As a matter matter of fact, I was was on with Rick Sanford on on, uh, Good Morning Hamilton the other day, you know, talking about the idea has, you know, the Netflix series and all the expansion and all the popularity that Formula One desired and really wanted. Have they grown too fast? I mean, the, the Vegas race turned out to be a bit of a debacle at the beginning. It turned out to be one heck of a good a good street race. When you've got a, a straightaway in the middle of a town, where you can go over 200 miles an hour. Wow, that's rather spectacular. I don't know if they're guilty of growing too fast. They just need to sort of make, maybe manage it a little bit better. They're in the States multiple times, Coda, Texas, for the U.S. Grand Prix. They're also in Miami, Florida, with a street race there. I know a street race in Las Vegas. They sell a lot of Ferraris. They sell a lot of Mercedes and McLarens and other derivatives of those cars in the continental U.S., and that's the reason why you've got three GPs in the U.S. Canada is part of that with a long-established Canadian Grand Prix, but Formula One wanted this. They wanted all this attention. Uh, they're, they're very, very healthy right now. Their TV numbers are, are terrific. And, yeah, you may have one guy winning everything, but that is the way the fabric of Formula One has always mm. worked. It's thank God, thank God, Scooter, they haven't tried to artificially adjust that like some of our friends in NASCAR tend to like to do. But anyway, it's, it's, the, it's the show. People know that. They're tuning in early in the morning on this side of the world to watch this drama. The Netflix series has, has a lot to do with that, and uh, F1 is enjoying the popularity. There's no mistake in that. Eric Thomas, Raceline Radio Network. You can hear him every Sunday right here. F1 season come to a close, and Max, of course, uh, Verstappen uh, dominant the whole season. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Uh, have a good sleep, and then we'll see you uh, when the <laughs> snow starts to melt. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, buddy. Thanks a lot, Scooter. And uh, take care. Take care. So long. You know, here might be a great example of why good news or that good news doesn't sell or that doesn't get anybody's attention. Ontario elementary teachers reached tentative contract deal with the province. This was dated. This is a CBC article dated last week, November 21st. Uh, and normally we've been talking 
for years, decades. I mean, I remember when I was a kid going through it, then my kids going through it, that, you know, every couple of years there was a big song and dance about teachers' contracts and threats of strike and working to rule and losing this and losing that. And this fall has come and gone with very, very, very little fanfare, other than, of course, some deals being signed. What is so different now? Let's bring in a Minister of Education for the province of Ontario, Stephen Lecce. He is with us now. Stephen, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. It's uh, great to be back. Thanks again, Scott. So, Stephen, where are we with all of this? Who is there anybody still not signed up? We're pretty much towards the end. We still have the Catholic Union of Oecdom and the French Union of AFO. We've got two more to get, uh, two more to land for our teachers, and then we'll have completed our negotiations for this year. This is a four-year deal. It's usually there are three years, so this adds an additional year. It covers the last year plus the next three, which is brilliant. And what it really means is stability for the cohort of a child. And we've been able to achieve uh, some really positive outcomes for kids. It's been a much better year, even last year too, stable year for the most part. And the result is in the data of EQAO when we saw kids stay in school in a stable environment with the folks on going back to basics, the, the results have been pretty solid, frankly. We've seen improvements in reading, writing, and math in grade three, six, and nine. We're doing much better than pretty much the entire country. But I accept there's more to do. And principle number one is got to keep the kids in school. And the premier has been clear. I've been clear. Nothing should matter more than some stability in their lives. So, yeah, we're on a roll. I feel good about that. And but I just want to get them all done. Every child deserves that stability, particularly for the French and Catholic parents out there listening. We're working hard to get those done soon this year. Uh, I, you know, I find it astounding because again, this story came up last week and we're going to talk about it. And then it kind of came and went and it passed and it gets lost in the sauce of the news of the day and such. Mm-hmm. But considering where we've been in the past, and we've talked about this an awful lot over the last two decades about how this just is, it just keeps going around and around. What is the secret? How did you get this done so successfully over the last couple of years? I mean, I know they've had some changes in their leadership as well, but yeah. how, how do you explain this? Well, I think we really got out on the front end of this, focusing on our motive of uh, keeping kids in school. And I think public opinion hardened around that concept. Parents understand instinctively. They've seen it in their homes. When their kids were out of class, when they don't have certainty and routine, they don't have the extracurriculars, the sports, the clubs, that physical stimulus, mental stimulus, they've seen their kids regress. Every parent in Ontario has seen that in some respect. Um, but what they've also seen is uh, getting their kids in school in a stable setting has been amazing. It's been, honestly, in many cases, it's been uh, a game changer. So I think the unions this round have read the room better. They understand where the public are at, parents, 70% of parents in Ontario support the government's oper- uh, proposal of using binding interest arbitration. I mean, look, honestly, we're, in, we're they're, they're politicians, so am I, and I think they understand that they, they had to read the room, and they did this time, and they understand that the vast majority, like 7 in 10 people agree with our proposal, uh, 8 in 10, uh, you know, uh, overwhelming majority would blame the union. I mean, there's a lot of data there that I think tells a story, which is they need to be seen as a good faith actor at the table, and they can't just be continuously striking in demand for higher wages or comp or whatever they're they're advancing. So uh, I will recognize that the change of leadership has has been a different approach. Uh, I've continued to take the same message to them, but I've also demonstrated a willingness to innovate along the way. In the summer, we quietly went to them offering many of the union's private interest arbitration. They all, all of them, quote, turned us down, and you know, then we re-offered it again once we went public, and then they accepted it. So for us, the lesson learned here is that you know we just have to be vigorous in defending the rights of children to be in school, and recognize that most of these organizations will, you know, uh, understand that parents are the ones who pay the bills, uh, are the ones uh, who need to be in the driver's seat of decisions. So a lot, a lot has changed. We've offered, we've, we've innovated. They're, they've got a new team in place that are leading their negotiation. And to the government's credit, we've also just focused on back to basics. You know, we're not focused on, uh, on any of these sort of... Uh, uh, disputes and fights. We, we want to be constructive and work with the parties ultimately to improve education quality and get back to basics on reading, writing, and math. That's my priority. And I'm going to need them to be a, or a, play a role in the change we're trying to 
deliver in Ontario's publicly funded schools where we actually emphasize, you know, uh, skills that I think young people need to succeed in the economy, particularly things like, you know, financial literacy in every grade or coding or, you know, cursive writing or critical thinking skills or communication skills. These are all things that matter to the development of a, per- a young kid. So, um, I'm just happy to see that approach has yielded good outcomes for families, for the kids, and even for the staff, too. At the end of the day, I think we all want the same thing, which is peace. Stephen Lecce with us, Minister of Education, Province of Ontario. Uh, deals with unions and education sector have been uh, quietly going on behind the scenes with some uh, with some great success. Stephen, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you. Listen, we often talk about the bad, the negative things happening in government. I appreciate the opportunity to highlight the progress we're making for the people of Ontario, and obviously I'll be back once we get these all done. All right, sounds good. Thank you so much, Minister. And, and you know, he's absolutely right. I mean, this was this has been happening quietly over the last couple of weeks. Nobody's talking about it. Yet, if it was the opposite and there was hell breaking loose, everybody would be screaming and yelling. Kudos to them, both sides, for getting her done. Uh, Education Minister, Province of Ontario, Stephen Lecce. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXML. We've talked an awful lot about the homeless and unhoused in not only our community, but right the way across the country. Uh, as throughout the summer, we saw uh, tent encampments and such grow uh, again right across the land. The cold weather obviously here, snow around the corner. What happens uh, moving forward, especially when it comes uh, to the Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters? Uh, let's bring in Dan Bedness, board chair, board of directors, Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters, and here now. Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. And uh, thank you for having me. really appreciate this. So, Dan, where are we now? I mean, obviously, we remember what the situations was was like in the summer and such, but obviously cold weather is approaching. Um, how closer are you to seeing projects uh, get to where they need to be? Where are you now? What we did is we reassembled our site search uh, team, and um, we've uh, ex- explored almost 15 uh, other locations uh, to date, and we're assembling the details on that. And hopefully we'll have it narrowed down to a, f- a few locations that are, are candidate sites. And, and I say candidate at this time. Um, and also what we've done is in a parallel effort, we've uh, forged ahead to try to help the homeless by initiating a number of fundraising areas, you know, with uh, 500 plus gift bags that we're going to distribute through uh, the hub, who is a partner with us. And, um, you know, we're getting lots of advocates and donors coming to the table to help us on that front. Like we've got the Home Depot, Hickory Dickory Deck, Westside Community Church, etc. So we've got gift bags with blankets, hats, gloves, flashlights, you name it. Um, we're trying to help as many people as we can through this very cold and traumatic time. Uh, we're so disappointed that we couldn't proceed previously, but at least we're trying to do something to help them. And are you any closer to, like you're talking about looking for possible sites for a tiny shelters community? Um, obviously, that's not going to happen before the snow flies. Is that safe? That's a safe uh, bet on that front. Um, what we are doing is uh, targeting for uh, the summer of 2024, which is not that far away. So a lot of the planning has to take uh, place up front, as you can appreciate. It takes us anywhere from three to six months to depending on the profile of a pro- of a property to be established. So we're hoping by January to have a, an announcement for everyone. And have you had a chance to talk to other cities, other areas, organizations dealing with the same thing? We've chatted to the people with, uh, from Kitchener on this, Kitchener-Waterloo. Uh, they he- seem to be having some success with, with these plans and such. Have you learned anything from other places doing it? Well, absolutely. Uh, have been communicating with a number of them. We've we've talked with the folks from Peterborough. We've talked, uh, obviously, the ones from uh, Waterloo, and that they have. Um, in most cases, they've had 
their municipality step up and uh, help support them uh, from a financial perspective, which makes a big difference. We're at this point, we're raising all of our own funds and we're being very successful, but uh, we need to go a step further, which is why we're having some further fundraising through uh, the Christmas period. And we have a planned gala to raise $100,000 in uh, April. So, um, Financing is is an area we want to keep pursuing as well as site selection. And we saw many in in tent encampments and such across the city over the course of the summer. Where are they all going to go in, in, when the snow flies? Exactly. Where are they going to go? There's only so many shelters and there's only, you know, places uh, for Haven. Um, it... it I think the density is going to increase regardless of of the guidelines to have only five uh, tents uh, per um, every 50 meter. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I honestly think that's going to uh, not be able to be adhered to, but uh, not for me to say, but uh, unfortunately, it is going to be a dire straits because the numbers, as you know, Scott, and your audience knows, the numbers are, are escalating. They're yeah. not going down. They're no. not leveling. They're escalating. And, you know, I keep going back to the Kitchener-Waterloo model, but, I mean, the various articles I've read on it, it seems that the residents are quite happy with with what they have, and it gives them a sense of independence and, and a chance to start. Uh, is there any way Hamilton City, uh, you know, whether it's council, whatever, has any interest in, in helping this move forward? Uh, I don't, you know, they have helped in that they have approved a two-year pilot um, yeah. based on on a site selection, and the site selection just hasn't um, taken fruition, and that's what we've got to get to. So, council has endorsed. Um, yeah. uh, I believe it was eight to six uh, that we proceed with a two-year pilot. So. Um, we do plan on doing that and and taking that opportunity for sure. But no, we're not going to see any tiny shelters built uh, before the winter at this point. Not from uh, not from hats. You won't Hamilton lines for tiny shelters. No, we 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 just can't establish that quickly. Dan Bednes with us, uh, board chair, board of directors, Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters, talking about uh, how they're getting ready uh, for the cold winter months that uh, are approaching. Dan, thanks for the update. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you very much. Uh, Facebook parent company Meta Platforms deliberately engineering its social platforms to hook kids. No way. I don't believe that. I've never heard of a company ever doing that. Uh, and also, I think the bigger uh, uh, concern, it's received millions of complaints about underage huge users on Instagram, but has only disabled a fraction of those accounts. To talk more about all of this and what it all means, Carmi Levy is with us, technology analyst and journalist, and here now. Carmi, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. So great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. I guess, Carmi, isn't this what AI is all about? Uh, hooking people <laughs> in? I mean, that's what AI is, isn't it? It kind of is. I mean, really, all technology, that's really what they want to do yeah. is get us to use their services so they can then keep us on those platforms as long as possible, serve as many ads up against our our, our activity and generate as much revenue uh, as a result. That's that's been the model going back to the beginning. Uh, that's been social media's model up until now. Of course, most of us, we, we don't pay for uh, accessing Facebook or Instagram. There are some premium services that you can layer on on a subscription basis, but generally speaking, they're free, the ads pay the freight, and the more they can hook us in, get us addicted, the more money they make from ads. Simple equation, um, but from what we're seeing from this particular lawsuit, they use some very sophisticated techniques and maybe not necessarily moral, ethical, or even legal, uh, legally acceptable uh, techniques uh, to get us to stick around. How are they crossing that line, Carmi? Um, there is, for example, you know, one of the allegations in this lawsuit is 33 American states uh, that have filed suit against Meta. The lawsuit was actually filed last last month, but now we're seeing uh, 
some details on it uh, unsealed. And one of the things that they allege in this lawsuit is that the company knew very well that uh, millions of users were, in fact, signing up for its service, even though they weren't yet 13 years old. Um, and they didn't do enough to stop that from happening. They didn't do enough to validate that they were, in fact, 13 in the first place. And then once they knew that these two young users were still on the platform, uh, they they didn't do anything. They removed uh, a paltry few, uh, but they're based on the lawsuit, they are, have uncovered documents that show senior executives at the company, up to and including Adam Masseri, who's the head of Instagram, uh, were chatting with each other on their systems, sending emails back and forth, saying it, making it very clear they knew what was going on. But they knew it was good for business, so they didn't do a whole lot to stop it, which is, you know, if you're trusting a company like Meta to do right by your kid when your kid uses their services, uh, it's pretty clear they weren't doing right by your kid. It seems, though, you know, with kids, uh, the more you tell them you can't have something, the more <laughs> they want it. So in a sense, this could work in their favor, could it not? It absolutely could. I mean, the, you're right. The the more you raise the, you know, I've, I've got three kids and anytime we yeah. uh, very vocally said, no kids, you can't that that telegraph to them that they wanted to. Uh, and disclosure <laughs> in our house, uh, we supervised our kids having access to services. And in some cases, uh, it was before they were 13, but it was with our mm. express knowledge. Uh, it was ridiculously easy for us to bypass whatever limitations Facebook and Instagram at the time had put uh, on our kids signing up for them. Uh, we went on that journey with them. And I think that's the key message here. Parents, don't trust Mark Zuckerberg. Trust yourself. Have that relationship with your kid. Um, and, and and you know, just because there's this arbitrary number doesn't necessarily mean that all kids need to adhere to it. But the message is clear. That's a decision that has to take place within the family unit, not within big tech. And the fact that we've been looking to big tech to behave responsibly. This lawsuit shows they don't behave responsibly. All they really care about is raising money. Uh, products to exploit shortcomings in youthful psychology, such as impulsive behavior, susceptibility to peer pressure, and the us, uh, underestimation of risks. Can you give us an example? What? How would they would do that? Yeah. So, for example, the algorithm would uh, be tweaked to show things from certain friends. You know, if the algorithm determines that there was a party or, uh, you know, a brand name uh, within a photo, it would highlight that in a child's feed. It wouldn't downplay it. It would upplay it. Um, and so, you know, create the fear of missing it, create the need to constantly scroll and refresh your feed, um, you know, uh, bring in ads that that uh, that of things that all of your friends are interested in or are buying and really crank up the ad rate within a particular feed. Uh, what is disturbing here is this builds on testimony that was shared a couple of years ago when Frances Haugen, the so-called Facebook uh, whistleblower, uh, testified in front of Congress. She said, even though, um, it's, it's, you know, because Instagram is a visually focused platform, the company knew that all of this visual exposure had negative mental health impacts on teenage kids, particularly teenage girls. And despite having access to data that Prove that this was happening. Instead of suppressing the algorithm to to you know maybe you know not make children feel like they were negative, they actually cranked the algorithm. They cranked it so that they would spend more mm. time on the platform, see more of this addictive content, uh, despite the fact that they knew it was harming their mental health. So you have this duality. On the one hand, company is is suggesting that it wants to be responsible and make sure that kids are safe on their platforms, but that safety goes against the profit motive. And because there aren't any laws on the books right now that deliberately deal with technologies that Meta releases uh, in terms of how they deal with children, at least not in that way, that child protection legislation, child advertising was launched in 1998, long before Facebook even became a thing. They know they can get away with it. So the PR their PR people work overtime to send a nice message. But the reality is in the background, they're doing everything they can to keep your kids, no matter how old or young they may be on it for as long as possible. And uh, can we police this? Can we, I mean, it, it's like having too much sugar in a candy bar. I mean, how do you, how do you police this? How do you, because uh, obviously, as you've said, that's, it's that traffic that generates revenue for them. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, it's 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 interesting that you use the candy bar analogy because you know, my parents had a thing about sugar, uh, and we're very concerned about the candy bars that I ate as a child, and so mm. that became a conversation that we would have about how many candy bars we'd be bringing into the house and how many I'd be allowed over the course of a given week, and what I had to do to earn the right to eat a candy bar. And I think the same kind of logic applies to social media. Uh, there's nothing that mom and dad can do to stop Meta from behaving in a certain way, but there is a whole lot that mom and dad can do to make sure that their kids are using social media tools in an appropriate manner. And all of that comes down to communication and visibility. As long as your kids know that you're a trusted resource and that you're on that journey with them and you can have open and honest conversations with them and you're not going to police them um, and sort of have like these arbitrary limits of how they can use it, but they can speak to you about the things they're experiencing as they use these tools. That goes a long way toward ensuring that, uh, that, you know, they can use you as a trusted resource and that they don't fall into that category of kids who get swept away by the algorithm. So really just talk to your kid and see where it goes. Uh, and don't worry too much about what Meta is or is not getting away with. In the end, the ultimate responsibility to ensure our kids are good digital citizens and are safe when they go online, it's still with us as mom and dad. It really isn't with the big tech companies. Good parenting works in every category. It's not just high tech, I guess. Obviously, <laughs> right on. So are you? Right on. So, it, and it's our responsibility to do, to do that. I was going to say, do we have a handle on it, or is this the wild west? But I guess that's up to the parent, isn't it? It really is. And you know, I mean, unfortunately, I see way too many parents who just shrug their shoulders whenever I suggest that yeah. and say, you know, I'm, I'm not really a tech expert. So what, you know, my kid knows a lot more about this stuff than I do. So what can I possibly add to the, to the equation? And reality is, is you don't have to be a tech expert in order to have those conversations with your kids. You can simply ask them what they're doing when they're online, yeah. uh, or you can sit with them and, and, and chat with them while they do their thing. They're remarkably open. They're not going to hide from you. I promise. Uh, and so don't use tech knowledge or lack thereof as an excuse to not engage with your kids um, and then just sit with them and build that trust over time. Uh, and that can go a long way toward, toward cutting those external risks that, you know, seem so scary when we see a lawsuit like this. But in the end, it's yet another kitchen table discussion, um, mm. whatever the technology happens to be. And, you know, but you talk to parents and they, oh, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And I say, are you kidding me? This is the best tool you could have ever have. Junior, give me the phone. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, my goodness, it's better than sending them to their room. Just say, hey, give me the phone. All of a sudden, the behavior changes. It's amazing. Exactly. No it, kid ever wants to have the phone taken away. Exactly, certainly not in my house. <laughs> exactly. It's like taking their oxygen. Uh, Carmi Levy with his technology analyst and journalist. Carmi, as always, thanks for the time. You well. So great being here, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This from Mr. Lowe on uh, teacher. Well, you know what? The teachers' unions and the government have been signing contracts with no fanfare. It's just getting it done without any of the, the dance, the song, and the scrapping and the inconsistency. And Mr. Lowe writes on the fact that we've got these deals signed. Stability for four solid years. Our students are the big winners with these contracts. That should be the main focus of any settlement, says Mr. Lowe. Keep right except to pass. 